I mean, we're all afraid of something, right? Actually, I was just brought back to this scene from a movie that I liked when I was a younger man called The Replacements. And Keanu Reeves is leading this team. This isn't in my notes. I shouldn't do this. Uh, Keanu, Keanu Reeves is leading this team of replacement athletes because there was an NFL strike. And he's trying to build camaraderie in the team. And actually, it's Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman's the coach. And he says, I just want to talk to you about fear. What are you afraid of? And these big offensive linemen are like, spiders, coach. Spiders? Yeah, when you sleep, they get in your mouth. Ooh, spiders. What are you most afraid of? I mean, some of us have, some of us have kind of boring fears, like arachnophobia, right? The fear of spiders. Some of us have agoraphobia, the fear of open spaces. I actually think a little bit agoraphobia has, has made a, a bit of a stronger resurgence in a world post-COVID because uh, society and the news media trained us for about three years to be afraid of going outside. Some of us have other common fears like glossophobia, which is actually the second most common fear, the fear of public speaking. Uh, the only thing people are more afraid of than public speaking is death. That's called necrophobia. In Illinois, I thought this was hilarious. The most Googled fear is, actually, this isn't hilarious. The next one is. Uh, Atikophobia, which is the fear of failure. But what might be more fascinating is that in both Kentucky and Arkansas, the most commonly Googled fear is hippopotamonstrosesquip pedaliophobia, which is the fear of long words. <laughs> what a cruel joke. If you struggle with this fear and you sit with a counselor and they're like, so um, you put on your intake form that you've got a phobia you're dealing with. Can you tell me which one? Nope. <laughs> well, it's, it'll be easier for me to help you if you can. Nope. Can't say it. But in an ever-changing society, Sometimes we have to make room for new phobias to arise, right? There would have been no occasion to be afraid of certain things before those things existed. Have you ever heard of nomophobia? Nomophobia? Is this anybody familiar with nomophobia? My guess is that there are people in this room who deal with nomophobia. It's, it's a new phobia. It's actually, it was just coined in 2019. Uh, any guesses as to what nomophobia might be? It's, it's actually, you can see, there's something of an acronym in it. It's no mobile phone. I'm I, if I'm lying, I'm dying. I'm serious as a heart attack. It is no mobile, it's the fear of not having your phone. Raise your hand if you deal with nomophobia. Be honest, be honest. Don't be lying in church. That man raised his phone. I love, I love that you did that. I love that you did that. Isn't this something of a sad reality for us? That we've become so, not just used to having it, but dependent on our, as if it's a, an extension of our being. That if we don't have it, we feel, I don't know, uncomfortable. I don't like that. No mobile phone phobia, like we're missing a part of ourselves. 
the reality is that we've actually become addicted to these phones. Uh, the, the statistics are, uh, and I'm not cussing, I promise, the statistics are damning. Uh, the, the stats around how addicted we've become to our phones. Have you, so raise your hand if you've had this experience. I, I, if you don't raise your hand, I think you're lying. <laughs> Have you ever felt phantom vibrations? Yes. Where you, you think that your phone vibrated and it's not even in your pocket or your wrist and you're not even wearing a smartwatch? Phantom vibrations. This is the product of an addiction. You know that, right? 84% of the global population uses a mobile phone every day. Think about that for a moment. More people have access to a mobile phone than an indoor toilet. Let that sink in for just a little bit. The average American, and I've got, I've got citations for these in the top corner so that you know I'm not just making stuff up. This is, these are from, uh, these are from, um, what are those called? Articles, goodness gracious. <laughs> the average American, don't laugh at me, Don. <laughs> the average American spends 42% of their waking lives online. That's as much time as you spend sleeping. Nearly 70% of people check their phones within five minutes of waking up. Is that you? I think the number's higher. I think it's much higher but that's data from 2020. The average mobile phone user, this one's awful. This is so hard to read. The average mobile phone user touches their phone 2,617 times in a day. Think about that. What has this produced in us? What, where, where has this culture left us? In a world full of Noise and distraction, pressures of constant connection. Have you, ever, have you ever had someone get angry with you because you didn't see an update that they posted on social media? You've had this experience? Because there's an expectation that if I post it on my social media, why would you not see it? Whoa, whoa. This is, these are symptoms of a sickness in a world of noise and pressures of constant connection and information farming. I was just speaking with another pastor. I was talking about an idea that I had a long time ago. And I said, uh, if, if you could get someone who was willing to do it, it's a little tedious, but you can look online and see when houses within five, 10 miles of your church get bought. And if you just sent a care package to that address from your church, I think that would be a really nice welcome to the neighborhood, let you know that we're here, we want to love you, we want to serve you. I've had this idea for a while and just never really, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a time-consuming exercise. And this pastor friend of mine who actually pastors a much larger church said, oh, we, we already do that, but, but we hire it out to a marketing firm and that marketing firm actually has uh, 20 to 50 points of data on that person the minute they buy their home. We know where they shop. Uh, we, know, we know what shows they watch. We know what they're interested in. And, and I get a report with all of that data. Just because you bought a house. The constant connection of our mobile world. Uh, and what has it cost us? So uh, we used to say, I used to say, 
I am bored to death. Anybody remember when we used to be bored? Like, I'm old enough to remember when we used to be bored. We're not bored anymore. We're always occupied. We're always taking in information. Do you or do you not? When you're bored, pull your phone out of your pocket to alleviate your boredom. We're doing an awful thing to ourselves. Do you realize that today the human attention span is shorter than that of a goldfish? Look it up. Look it up. I don't have the stat here. I cut it out of my notes. It's real. Look it up. It's a sad reality. We've done this to ourselves because we haven't exercised our minds. We've just given ourselves over to mindless preoccupation. We so despise boredom. And actually, boredom, especially for children, parents with the phones and the devices, Please, I'm just I'm pleading with you from the bottom of my heart. Let your kids be bored. Make them be bored, please. Please. Boredom is when creativity happens. You will train their brains to be creative if you force them to be bored. And they're going to whine about it because they know that the tablet exists. You have to let them be bored. Please. Don't punt that time to devices. Let them be bored. Let them exercise their creativity. Give them a cardboard box and let them stare at it confusingly (laughs) until it becomes a spaceship or a race car or a house. What did this constant connection cost us, this phone addiction? What has it cost us? Surely it's cost us boredom. We used to say, I'm bored to death, and now we've put boredom to death. Boredom, sure. But maybe boredom was a price we were willing to pay. Maybe we, maybe we actually despise boredom, and we ought not to, but maybe we do. I think the real price that it cost us, and I think the evidence bears this out, you look at the stats and the, the rise of anxiety and depression disorders among young people, I think here's what it cost us. I think it cost us our peace. I think the real price was our peace. And I think it cost us silence and solitude. Good morning, resurrection. Good morning, good morning. Grateful to spend Sunday morning with you. Grab your Bibles. I want to invite you to open those to Matthew 4, uh, which is where we've been camping out the last two weeks and where we're going to be uh, through Good Friday. And so one text of Scripture, and we're just going to... Here's how I've described it. We're going to hold it, and we're just going to turn it like a diamond, and we're going to appreciate the the color and the clarity and the luster and the beauty of this gem of a text. I want to introduce you to this series in case you've missed the first two. Uh, we're, we're going on what we've called a 40-day journey. And between uh, the Sunday before Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, we're, we're taking uh, 40 days and we're walking with Jesus in an attempt to pursue Christ-likeness. Uh, We want to be like him. And so we're looking at his 40-day journey that we read about in Matthew 4. And as we slowly turn this gem, we want to see what of his character and what of his behavior patterns we can take into ourselves, take onto ourselves, and emulate that we might be, by the end of this 40-day journey, a little bit more like Jesus. So we're slowly examining his 40-day journey in Matthew 4 to emulate his character. And in week one, we saw that Jesus fasts 
uh, that this is a, a pattern that he had taken onto himself. And when he teaches, he says, and when you fast, he assumes you will. Uh, and I think fasting has been kind of a lost art in Christianity. And I've been so encouraged by how many of you have come to me since that sermon and said, Pastor, I'm trying it. And I don't know if I'm doing it right. Can you, can you help me? Uh, so we've got a fasting guide we published. It's in the back of the room and at the Connection Center. If you'd like to get into something like that between now and Easter, it's a beautiful thing uh, to just kind of try your hand at. And you can start where you are. It doesn't have to be this big intimidating thing. You can build up um, to, to making this a pattern in your life. Then last week, Pastor Jake showed us that Jesus was led by the Spirit, which should be this scandalous line in the story because the next thing that's said is Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So what does it look like to be led by the Spirit? Jake did a phenomenal job of helping us to understand and to see what it should mean that we would be led by the Spirit. If you want to catch up on either of these messages, they're on our YouTube, they're on our Facebook, and they're on our website. And they're on Spotify now. Um, Dan, Dan loads our sermons on Spotify as well. And so you can find all of those for your morning drive or uh, whenever you would want to listen. So this morning, we're just turning that diamond just another degree, uh, and we're going to explore that Jesus seeks solitude. Jesus seeks solitude. The one thing that our technology, technologically overconnected world has robbed us of is something that Jesus sought out. And here's what I think. Here's what I think is I think that there's an invitation that I'm going to lay on the table this morning that Scripture lays before you. There's an invitation to seek out this pattern of silence and solitude. And, and, and here's what I know. Like, I don't think this. I know it is if you don't seek it out, if you're not intentional about it, you won't have it. Because we live in a world that is shouting at you, demanding your time. Every time your phone vibrates, I actually thought about figuring out exactly what that tone is and running it through the speakers and seeing how many of you pat your pockets. Uh, I think that if you don't seek it out, you won't find it. You won't have it. And, and you'll be robbing yourselves of something beautiful. This is a pattern of Jesus. It's not only in this text. In fact, often we find that Jesus in the crowd in pursuit of solitude. What we'll find today is that if you do it right, solitude isn't loneliness. And I think that's a common misconception. Solitude is not loneliness. Rather, solitude is getting away from the crowd to get alone with the king. It's not loneliness if you do it right. It can be if you do it wrong. That's called isolation. We'll get to that in a moment. Solitude is not loneliness. It's intimacy with the king. So hopefully you found Matthew 4. This is becoming a familiar text for us, but I'm not sorry. Uh, it would serve you well to commit verses like these to memory. I'm going to invite you to stand on your feet if you've found it. And even if you haven't, I'll have it on the screens for you. We're going to go Matthew 4, 1 through 11 this morning. And then before you're seated, I'll pray for us. Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, 
Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And pray for us. Oh, Father, our Father, hallowed be your name. Would your kingdom come, would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Father, would you give us today daily bread from your word? Would you feed our souls? We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth, might we feast this morning at your table. Would you forgive us our trespasses? Would you empower us with courage to forgive those who've trespassed against us? And would you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one? Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. We love you. We're grateful to be your people. Would you meet with us this morning? Have your way in us and through us and among us for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people agreed and said, Amen. You may be seated. Already, just in Matthew 4, we see what is the beginning of a pattern in the life of Jesus. Uh, this is something He consistently gives Himself over to. Regularly and repeatedly throughout the Gospels, we read that Jesus seeks solitude. And this text in Matthew 4 is effectively the first time in his ministry that we see him do this. But it is not the first time, surely not the first time he has done this. If you recall, when he was an infant, his family had to flee to Egypt to get away from the persecution of King Herod. So he's used to pulling away into desolate places. But this... What we've just read is, marks the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. He's just been baptized by John in the Jordan, and as he is preparing to set out on what will be a three-year ministry where he will uh, amass a huge following of potentially tens of thousands of people following him in the wilderness, only to whittle them back down to the twelve, heartbroken. As he begins this ministry, he... He initiates it by surrounding himself, not with wisdom, but with wilderness. Interesting. You would think that he would run to the synagogue, but instead he runs to solitude. Fascinating. Jesus isn't looking for loneliness. He's not looking for isolation. He's looking for deep fellowship and communion with the Father. Because the Father would prepare him for a task that no man could prepare him for. This should fascinate us. Why does Jesus retreat into the wilderness? Actually, if you were to find yourself in Mark chapter 1, Mark's a cool gospel. If you, if you get the differences between the gospels, Mark is the shortest and the most action-oriented gospel. And in Mark 1, three times in one chapter, we're going to see Jesus pull away from the crowd. So in verses 12 and 13, we read, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now, that's actually 
the same story that we just read in Matthew 4. This is just Mark telling the same story. And while he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan, he was with the animals and the angels were ministering to him. Praise God. Same, same story we just read. Then in verse 35, we read, now Jesus is getting ready to preach in Galilee and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. So, so in verse 12, you don't have to go there with the slide. In verse 12, he was, drove, he was driven into the wilderness. In verse 35, he departs to a desolate place prior to a day of preaching and casting out demons. And then in verse 45, Jesus has just cleansed a leper, and he tells that leper to not tell anyone about it. <clears throat> verse 44, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer your for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out, the leper, went out and began to talk freely about it. And the news spread so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Luke, when he wrote about the cleansing of the leper and the departure to the wilderness, establishes that this is not a one-time thing for Jesus. And we've already seen it in Mark, but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show you very quickly with a kind of a tour of this theme in the Gospels, I want to show you that this wasn't something Jesus did once in a while. This was something he did all the time. Nobody was surprised when Jesus just disappeared. He was going into the wilderness. He was going to a desolate place. So in Luke's gospel, Luke says, verse Luke 5, 15 and 16, but now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. The verb tense there doesn't come through as clear in the ESV as I would like. So the CSB, which is another great translation, the Christian Standard Bible renders that he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. This is his pattern. And the tie that binds all of these verses that we just read, every, every single one of them and others, the word in Greek behind, every time you see wilderness or desert or deserted place or desolate place, the word in, the word in Greek behind that is one word. It's all the same. Whether it's rendered as desert place, deserted place, desolate place, wilderness, it's the same word in Greek. It's eremos. Eremos is the word. Eremos has a broad range of meaning that's well represented by what we just saw, but I want, I want to show you that this is a theme. This is a theme. It's the same place Jesus is going. He's going to the Eremos. Eremos can mean desolate, deserted, empty, isolated, lonely, solitary, uninhabited. You get the idea. It's a, it's a desolate place. It's a deserted place. It's a wilderness. It's a wild place. It's actually interesting. Uh, there's a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Um, and in the Septuagint, the word that is used for the wanderings of the nation of Israel in, uh, in the Exodus, it, the word for that wilderness is Eremos. 
They wandered for 40 years through the Eremos. Jesus was 40 days in the Eremos. You should see something of a recapitulation of that story, but we'll get to that in a later sermon in this series. How would we describe a place that is empty, isolated, lonely, and uninhabited? What would be the most remarkable thing that you would observe about It's quiet. It's quiet. Uh, many of you know every summer uh, I go with uh, Paul Doverspike and some friends and we go to the mountains. Uh, and one of the most amazing things you'll find in the mountains is you don't have access to distractions. Your phone, so, so like you can look at your pictures and stuff on your phone, but you got no data. I mean, you, you haven't had data for days. No social media, no text messages, no emails, no phone calls. And it never ceases to amaze me how easy it is to pray in the mountains. How easy it is to dial in with the Father in the mountains. How easy it is to appreciate the things that I take for granted here while I'm out there. There's something about those quiet places. God meets with us in those quiet places. And this is where Jesus went, to the Aramas, to the quiet places, away from the noise. But he wasn't escaping something so much as he was pursuing someone. Because solitude is getting away from the crowd and getting alone with the king. Jesus did this often. He withdrew to the Aramas. See, there's something actually really cool about this idea of Aramas. And the theme that we, can, that we can trace from the Exodus through the Gospels. Because what did God want of the nation of Israel in the Aramas? What did he want from them? Why did they have to wander for 40 years? Why was the trip prolonged? He wanted them to trust him. They failed to trust him, and so that the trip was prolonged. It should have been 13 days, and instead it was 40 years. Walking in circles. He wanted them to trust him. What's God doing in the Aramas? Actually, I've missed something about this for so long. So here's, here's how I've thought about this text pretty much my entire Christian life. So I'll reread to you Matthew 4, the first couple of verses here. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And here's what I would have said. Jesus had to have fasted for 40 days in order for temptation to have any hold on him. He's perfect. He's constitutionally perfect. He had to be weakened by the wilderness. He had to be made vulnerable by the fast and by the wilderness in order for temptation to have some hold on him because it's not temptation if you're not tempted, right? I think that'll kind of break your brain if you think about it long enough. Jesus wanted on some level to give in to these or else they're not temptations. There had to be something for him to resist. And while I think that that's a, a true picture of what's happening here, I'm not saying that's not what's happening, I'm, I'm certainly isn't all of what's happening. There's something more here. And I had totally missed it. I had totally missed that the Aramas, 
the wilderness, the desert, the, the desert, the desolate places, the lonely places, the, the quiet places for Jesus, they weren't a place of weakness. It was a place of great strength. I, I would have always thought that this was a, a, a weakness. He's isolated. He's alone. And isn't that just like the devil to come to us when we're isolated and alone and hangry? That's, that's how I would have said it, but, but I missed something. Because this wasn't a place of weakness. It was a place of strength. This is the place where he was most emotionally and intellectually present with the Father, the most undistracted, the most focused, the most sensitive. This has been true for me every time I've gone to the mountains. It is so easy for me to not fall into patterns of sin and temptation. Why? Because I'm near to my Father. I'm nearest to him when I'm away from the noise, when I'm out in the Aramos. So Jesus' fast, his fast may have meant physical weakness, but combined with the Aramos, it meant, phys- it meant spiritual strength. His fast rendered him physically weak, but combined with the Aramos, he was spiritually strong. This is the course of events that readies Jesus to take on the enemy head on and win. Like when you, when you face a guy who's called the tempter and you overcome, it, 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 it would be kind of like if you were fighting a guy called the destroyer and you didn't get destroyed. You know? You, you face a guy called the tempter and you come out unscathed. That's no small thing. It wasn't that he was vulnerable in the wilderness, but that he was strong because of the wilderness. Because solitude is getting away from the crowd to get alone with the king. There's another thing I always got wrong about solitude. And, I, and I've, I've tried to submit to this practice a couple times over the last few years, but really in preparing for this sermon, my eyes were open to something that I'd missed. See, I always thought of solitude as abstinence. Solitude is about abstaining from conversation, abstaining from community for a period of time, abstaining from social media, abstaining from my phone. But solitude is not so much abstinence as it is pursuit it's saying a temporary no in order to say an eternal yes and if you frame it as abstinence you'll feel like you're losing something but if you frame it as pursuit you'll recognize that you're gaining something much better it's a temporary no for an eternal yes so we say no to distraction so we can say yes to devotion We say no to busy, so we can say yes to beauty. We say no to productivity, so we can say yes to his presence. We say no to the crowd in order to say a vehement and eternal yes to our king. It's not so much about what you lose. It's about everything you stand to gain in the Aramas. This, my friends, is the beauty of solitude. The beauty of pulling away, the beauty of unplugging for just a pocket of time. It's 
not a place of weakness. It's a place of strength. It could become a place of weakness. And this is where I need you to hear me so clearly. Because just a couple months ago in our Judges series, I was talking about the, the error of Samson, one of the errors of Samson. And I said, solitary confinement is the worst punishment you can, the worst punishment you can give to someone who's going to stay alive because it leaves you alone with your worst enemy. And I warned you against isolation. And I want to be careful to distinguish between solitude and isolation. Because they can look the same on the outside, but they are very different on the inside. Solitude is not isolation. If you do it right, it is not isolation. John Mark Comer, in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, distinguishes them in this way. I think this is so helpful. Solitude is engagement. Isolation is escape. Solitude is safety. Isolation is danger. Solitude is how you open yourself up to God. Isolation is painting a target on your back for the tempter. Solitude is when you set aside time to feed and water and nourish your soul, to let it grow into health and maturity. Isolation is when you crave, is what you crave when you neglect the former. And, and solitude, as somber as it sounds, is anything but loneliness. So if Jesus has demonstrated and displayed and submitted himself to this pattern of solitude, withdrawing from the crowd to get alone with the king. And if you've been called as a Christian, one who would be like Christ, if you've been called to follow his example here, there's a very rational question that might be filling your mind right now, and that's why? Why? How? Uh, Why withdraw to desolate, wilderness, solitary places can't i here's here's maybe let me frame the question in a way that i think you might actually ask it It, it's still a why but let me frame it as i think you might ask it why can't i just meet with the king in the midst of the busyness of my life without setting aside things i love to pursue solitude like why should i have to shut my phone off don't don't you know i have nomophobia gives me anxiety to shut my phone off. What if I miss something? Can't I meet with the king in the midst of the busyness of my life? And here's my answer to you. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe you can. Maybe you can. Or, or maybe you'll be drowned in a flood of family group chat texts and work emails and push notifications and intrusive vibrations. Maybe you'll be drowned by those distractions, every time you commit yourself to communing with the Lord, maybe, just maybe, something will step in and shout at you to get your attention. It will demand your attention. And your brain has actually been hardwired to resolve this tension you feel. Like it would be a good thing for you if when your phone went off, you intentionally left it alone. Because you've been trained like Pavlov's dog. That when your phone, I'm, se- I'm so serious right now, there is like a neurochemical connection that when that phone goes, bzz, bzz, you get a little hit of dopamine in your brain and you have to, you feel this need to resolve, like, what is it? Did I get a comment on the photo that I posted? Did I get an email from my boss on my day off? 
Maybe every voice in this world shouts to get your attention, and maybe, just maybe, God won't shout. Maybe, just maybe, you'll have to get away from the noise to find that his is a still, small voice. So I think we're right back to where we started. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid you'll miss the comment on your photo? Is that what you're afraid of? Are you afraid you'll miss the work email from your boss on your day off? Are you afraid? Are you afraid that you'll miss an emergency? Are you afraid to face the reality that you're not God? And I don't think you would say that you think you are, but let me just kind of show you how the phone tricks you into thinking you are. Because all praise be unto Google who can make me look informed on all matters, legal and otherwise, with just a simple search, right? Um, I can't be everywhere, but I can talk to anyone on the planet in a matter of just seconds, and I can see their face, right? Like, this was like Jetsons stuff when I was growing up, and it's real. You can, you can talk to someone face-to-face on the other side of the globe. I did it with Ebony while I was in Slovakia. It was great. You can't be everywhere, though. And while you have the world, infor- the world of information in your pocket, you, you don't know everything. This phone gives you access to information, but you're not omniscient. It allows you to connect with anyone anywhere in the world, but you're not omnipresent. So what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of giving up your power to know? to know everything. I think that it's this facade that we put up for other people because we feel like we can't say these words. These are like bad words. I don't know. And what is I don't know except a recognition of my limitation. And when I recognize my own limitation, I I can relent to his unlimitedness. That phone may allow you to think that you're all-knowing, but you're not. That phone may allow you to know what's going on, but it leaves you incapable of changing any of it. What are you afraid of? I think you ought to have a very serious, look-in-the-mirror conversation with your soul and ask if you have nomophobia. Am I afraid to just leave this thing in a drawer for an hour. Two hours? What about dinner time? I wish that I had time to tell you all of the stats that I uncovered about how many children say that they wish their parents weren't on their phones so much. The the stats are heartbreaking. Think about what we're missing out on because we're, we're addicted. And, and I'm not railing against phones. God has given us all things to richly enjoy. But I think, I think that by submitting to a pattern of silence and solitude, we might just train our hearts to love not being connected to the phone so that we might be connected to the King, to the Father. We might just train our hearts to love this. I think the invitation today is to set yourself free from the frantic pace of slavery to your notifications.
I'll never forget a conversation I had with Nick Harland. He's one of my elders here at the church, one of our elders here at the church. Uh, we were sitting for a cup of coffee, and I was kind of in a frantic season. I was finishing my master's and leading a church and you know, a thousand other things. We sat for a cup of coffee, and the first thing out of my mouth was I said, I saw your text. I'm so sorry I haven't responded. He said, hey, that phone exists for your convenience, not mine. Set me free. Set me free. I don't have to be a slave to every text message. I don't have to be a slave to every phone call. It, it doesn't get to inject itself into my life and into my patterns. It exists to serve me, not the other way around. He set me free. And I think that's the invitation today is freedom. Freedom from slavery to your notification, to the and Here are some ideas. Consider them invitations. If the idea of seeking solitude feels so far from reality for you, you're not even sure if it's possible, let me show you that it is. I want to invite you to begin here. Create pockets of silence and solitude. You don't have to take a whole day or a half a day. You don't have to take a, a weekend retreat. But that might feel completely inaccessible for you. You got kids and you've got a spouse and you got a job and you got friends and family who are counting on you and drawing on you. You got boyfriends or girlfriends. Like a weekend retreat is way off the radar for you, but you drive places, don't you? Yes, you do. Put the phone on do not disturb. Shut off the radio. Maybe you pray. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're just quiet before the Lord. And maybe, maybe you pray a super simple prayer. Father, this car ride, would you just meet with me? And then you leave it alone. And you see what bubbles to the surface of your heart in the quietness of the car. Now, solitude is almost always linked with prayer. But some of the most meaningful times I've ever spent with the Father in prayer is I'm walking and I'm just bringing all of my requests and all of my thoughts and all of my ideas. And you guys know me by now. I pray through the alphabet. It just helps me stay on track. I'm a systematician. It helps me to always kind of be looking for the next thing. And, and, I, mean, I, can, I, and I got to the letter W. And I said, Father, would you just walk with me? I want to shut up. I want to stop bringing my requests and my complaints I just want you to walk with me. And on my road, my cars are passing me and I got my dogs and tears are just streaming down my cheeks and totally silent before the Lord. Because I just had this mental picture that Jesus was just walking with me. It was so sweet. I just want to invite you into these pockets. It doesn't have to be this big thing. You've got a 10-minute drive, shut off the radio. Put your phone on Do Not Disturb and just be your do your best to be present with Him. Here's another idea. Maybe in the morning, set your alarm 15 minutes early. 15 minutes before you know you need to get up, find a spot in your house. Maybe it's an extra room that nobody's in. Maybe it's the garage. Like, Do what you got to do. And just be with Him for 15 minutes. Before the kids get up and before there's a thousand demands, don't even touch your phone. Just leave it on the nightstand and go somewhere to just be alone with him. 15 minutes. A mini retreat. Ask him to meet you there and then be still. 
Here's where I am with solitude. I've done this a couple times. I've wanted to do it consistently. And frankly, solitude is just one of those disciplines that is the most uncomfortable for me because I'm a doer. Uh, do I have any other doers? I'm a doer. Golly, it's hard for me to take a day. I'm a doer. So here's where I'm at with solitude. Here's, I try to take a half a day and I put my phone on do not disturb, but I leave it on so that Ebony can see my location. I get on my bike and I ride to a park and I pack in my backpack my hammock and I set up between two trees in a public park and I got a notebook and I got my Bible and I'm just there. Sometimes I'm praying, sometimes I'm journaling, sometimes I'm reading, but most of the time I'm just quiet and I'm trying to take in what I'm seeing in a way that enables me to appreciate it like I normally just overlook it. I'm just trying to be silent before the Lord and present. And it's hard. And honestly, a little bit I hate it, but I love it. I'm serious because, because it's in that place that the Lord deals with me most. And you know what he deals with me on? He reminds me that I didn't have to earn his love. He reminds me that when he went to the cross, it was while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. He's not most pleased with me when I'm writing a sermon or delivering a sermon or counseling someone's marriage. I'm inclined to think he's most pleased with me when I do those things. He actually is no more or less pleased with me when I do those things than he is when I just sit in a hammock in his presence. And that sets me free. It confronts me, but it sets me free from this feeling that I need to earn it that I need to perform my way into his affections. He paid for all of my inadequacies on the cross. So whether I preach well or whether I preach poorly, whether I make everybody happy or whether I make everybody frustrated, whether I counseled the marriage perfectly or counseled it poorly, the Father's affections for me are unshifting because they're grounded not in my behavior, but in the perfect work of his son, Jesus, on the cross on my behalf. And it's in the solitude that he comforts me with these uncomfortable truths. Intentionally slowing down, not productive, just present. No distraction, just devotion. Try to move slow and appreciate what I'm inclined to overlook because solitude is getting away from the crowd to what? To be alone with the king. When I seek solitude, I find him. I find patience as I slow down that day. I find peace as he reminds me that I can take my hands off of my world and it never stops spinning. I find that my life is bearing fruit because it's in those moments of solitude as I meet with the king that I'm abiding in him and he in me. And his promise to you and me is that if I abide in him, if you abide in him, and if he abides in you, you will bear much fruit. And that's the invitation this morning. Hey, eyes on me. Nothing to be scared of. Nothing to be scared of. Solitude is not this ascetic practice that monks take on. Solitude is an invitation to peace and freedom for your restless and weary soul. 
And all I'm asking you to do is find a pocket of it and lay hold of it. And here's what I think is maybe, just maybe, like Jesus, you'll turn it into a pattern. You begin with a pocket, you turn it into a pattern because you, be, you get addicted to abiding with your Father. Freedom from slavery, freedom from fear, freedom from a frantic pace, freedom to draw close to the Lord in pockets of Eremos. Quiet. And just abide in Him. I pray that He would work this in you. So I'm going to pray that right now. Father, oh, Father, would you work this in us? Empower us, Lord, to obey. Empower us to receive freely the gift of your perfect satisfaction with us, not by what we do. And remind us of that as we sit in quiet Eremos places. We don't earn this. Father, from the minute we wake up to the minute we go to bed, you are available to us. Oh, Lord, would you give us eyes that see and hearts that are perceptive that we might choose pockets of Eremos during our day to just slow down, quiet ourselves before you, to do what we ought to do, to do what you have made a way for us to be able to do, to draw close to you and to just abide with you. Oh, Father, would you work that in us? We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people agreed and said, Amen, Amen.